welcome to episode 403 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook, your writer, host, producer, and huge fan of H.P. Lovecraft, but I'll get to that here in a second. Welcome to the show. How are you guys doing? 2019 treating you well? I I hope so. I I hope you've had a chance to watch a number of monster movies already, including this week's pick. We're going to be talking about the Dunwich Horror from 1970. It's an American international production, and it's... Okay, spoiler alert, I love this movie, and I had a blast chatting about it with Brian Clark. Now, Brian's been on the show in the past, kind of, sort of, and you're going to have to wait for his conversation with me about the film to know what I mean by that. Brian is a huge fan of this movie, too, and he was actually the one that kind of inspired this episode when he mentioned this film at one point in passing on Facebook, and I'm thrilled that we finally get to do it here. Plus, I'm continuing the Lovecraft love, because last week we had a recording from last year's HP Lovecraft Film Festival in Cthulhu Con, so let's keep the tentacles going. Don't worry. We're going to do something non-tentacle next week. I promise. You'll have to stay tuned for that. Also in this week, we have the return of the Weird Wednesday report from Jeff. He called in not just once, but twice over the past couple of weeks with his report from the screening, the Weird Wednesday screening at the Joy Cinema here in Tigard, Oregon. So we've got that coming up. Plus, Kenny and his famous Monsters of Filmland segment. You're going to hear that right before Brian and I start talking about the Dunwich Horror. And then at the end of the show, we'll touch on a little bit of feedback. The song that you're hearing that we used to open the show is called A Positive Hologram. It is from the newest album from the band Robotron. They're a surf band based out of Bergen, Norway. You can find them at Robotron and then the number one.bandcamp.com. Check out their album, Robotron, in part three, the final battle, Robotron versus Notobor, the emotional robot. Go check it out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you when you're done listening to this episode of the show. And don't worry, at the end of this episode, you're going to get to hear the song in its entirety. Big thanks to them for letting us play their music. And this is a fun episode. I had a blast editing it. I hope you have a blast listening to it. Why don't we go ahead and let you do that right after this. Mr. Lesson, you want her to end up like this. The terror begins on the road to the house with the shuttered room. There's no hope for Susanna if she spends even one night in that house. Why, um, detect a threat there somewhere? Did you feel it? Feel what? When you opened that door, it was like I was standing in front of a refrigerator. The terror is a touch, a sound, a sense of someone watching that stains two people with the secret of what lies in the shuttered room and 
beyond. Please, let me go. I have to see my husband. Well, what's wrong with staying right here and passing the time of day with me? Hey, Chief. That sure is a lovely wife you got there. And you know, I hear tell she's just as pretty all over. You wouldn't happen to know what your wife's doing right now, would you? Hey, maybe Ethan knows what this guy's wife's doing. Maybe this guy's wife knows what Ethan is doing. Because maybe they're doing the same thing together. Wait a Let me help you. Sleep one night in the house with the shuttered room. And you may never want to sleep again. Have you heard? Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story. Either a whole short story or a novel, a chapter or two at a time. Join us for our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu mythos at the end of the month. Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Black Clock Audio Tales. Part of darkmyths.org Thank you. What's happened? The whole town seems deserted. That monster's on the loose right here in town. Anybody catch sight of this thing? Well, a few kids playing in the street said he was 20 feet tall, covered with long hair and had great big teeth. Behind these empty streets, these windows shut in fear, lies the strange story of a young girl who knows the secret of the teenage monster. Fascinated by an evil demon, unable to control her sinister desires, she leads the monster to his prey, sacrificing an entire town to his insatiable lust for human life. I don't like to be stolen from her. I don't like to be laughed at. Oh, but it's not going to happen anymore. Because Charles won't let it. He'll kill anybody who does. Even you, I think. <gasps> Joe Martindale came in this morning, lost six of his blooded steers last night, and a rider. The steers had their throats torn out, and the rider, Bill Begley, was beat to death. It's that thing again. I'll meet you back at the office. I'm gonna have to go, Ruth. You stay in town. That thing's loose on the range again, not 15 miles from your mine. What was it? It was that thing. Harry and horrible. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. I saw him, the monster. He ran away from this barn carrying the girl. A posse in panic, not knowing what they'll find. Man, beast, or demon from another world as they pursue the loathsome killing thing they call the teenage monster. Hi, Derek and the Monster Kids. This is Jeff Blair calling in with a weird Wednesday report. The first one of the year. 
The first Weird Wednesday was on the 2nd, and it was 1973's Invasion of the Bee Girls. That, that's B as in insect, not as in the letter B. Although, I am sure the double meaning was not lost on the producers of this film. So, for those who don't know, men are mysteriously dying. They seem to have nothing in common except they live in the same town, and they have all had sex. But uh, their hearts are bursting. So, this... Uh, federal agent comes to investigate because at least one of them has worked for this company with government contracts and what he discovers is that one of the scientists there has been messing around with genetics and basically has merged women of the town with queen bee material that tries them to go seek out and have sex, and uh, this sex is, I, I don't know if it's so good or what, but uh, basically it kills the men that they're having sex with. When the movie started, I was thinking I hadn't seen this before, uh, and it does have kind of a similar idea to The Wasp Woman, with women being transformed into singing insect creature kind of thing. But by the end of the movie, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I've seen this before. This is rated R for a very good reason. There aren't any really sex scenes per se, but boy, is there a lot of nudity. So if that's not your thing, don't watch this one. Go watch The Wasp Woman. It's much more chaste. Anyway, it, it's a lot of fun. It's campy. It's a little disturbing that at one point, the lead female that's helping our, our male hero is sexually assaulted and like two days later is completely recovered from it and ready to have sex with our hero. Yeah, that, that's a little disturbing in the, in the Me Too era. But anyway, it, it's an okay movie. It's fun. It's not a great movie or it probably would be shown at Weird Wednesday. Anyway, I'll be calling back soon with another Weird Wednesday report. All small towns are alike. Or are they? Peckham, California, invented their own erotic homespun amusements. Until the invasion of the B-Girls. What bizarre secrets threaten every man in town? The invasion of the B-Girls. What strange force turned ordinary housewives into lustful, sex-starved creatures craving the wanton desires and passions of every man in town? The invasion of the B-Girls. Could anyone stop this beehive of sexual frenzy? The invasion of the B-Girls. One of the most unusual and stimulating stories ever filmed. The invasion of the B-Girls. They're coming. Listen for them. They'll love the life right out of you. The Invasion of the Beagles. Rated R from Sequoia Pictures. The 9th of January, Weird Wednesday was Zong Guao Chao Ren, which the English version is Inframan, or as the copy we watched said, the Super Inframan. This is a fun, fun Chinese movie. Superhero movie. It is very much in the vein of, say, Power Rangers, uh, with lots of rubber monsters and out-of-this-world, over-the-top martial arts stunts. The hero, Inframan, even his costume is very reminiscent of what would later be seen in Power Rangers stuff. There's this Princess Queen from the Dawn of Time who comes back to life, Princess Dragon Mom, and she has a mutant army, and she proves she can attack and destroy whatever she wants to. And so one of the uh, elite 
fighting forces of this science station volunteers to undergo adaptation and is turned into Inframan. And he's completely unstoppable, except when he is. It's so much fun. The creature designs, I mean, yeah, they're rubber suit stuff, but there's so much fun and there's so much potential there. Like, there's one monster that early on I thought was a tentacle monster, but it turns out it's a vine monster. And it does incredible things, burrowing into the ground and causing these huge vines to come up and attack a facility. is just amazing. It is so much fun to watch. And it's a nice, clean movie. This is the kind of stuff you can watch with your kids. The origin of Inframan is kind of a mix of Captain America meets the Bionic Man in terms of the, the experimentation he goes through to become this super Inframan. Some of the things make no sense. But, gosh darn, you just don't care. It's so much fun to watch. So, I highly recommend this one. Anyway, I hope everyone's having a great 2019 so far. And I've heard tonight's Weird Wednesday is going to be a Pop and Joe movie. So, I'm looking forward to that. And I'll call back soon with another Weird Wednesday report. At last, science fiction creates the ultimate man. Inframan. And a motion picture creates the ultimate spectacle. Adventure beyond your wildest imagination with the man beyond bionics. Six million light years beyond believability. Is he man or machine? Electronic circuits integrated with living cells in the living body of a man. Powered by nuclear energy. Believe your eyes. You won't believe your ears. You won't believe your mind. Now, Joseph Brenner brings you the most advanced product of bionic science, towering above them all. Thunderbolt fists. Rocket feet. Can Inframan survive heat that melts rock? Cold that freezes fire. Is Inframan a match for men of steel? motion picture that will stagger your imagination. Inframan, the ultimate in science fiction.
Monster Kid Radio Heads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's movie, The Dunwich Horror, was briefly mentioned in Famous Monsters number 94 from November of 1972 in an article entitled Shockabye Baby by Thomas Rogers. The author introduces his work with these comments. Both science fiction and horror short stories and literature have been known for their usual shock or surprise endings. Although novels of this nature generally have a happy or tranquil climax, there are some which, I am happy to say, do not. Through the years, more and more motion pictures of this type have conformed to the Twilight Zone style. The changeover is both exciting and enjoyable. Originally, movies as well as books showed the good guys always winning. This attitude is very unrealistic. People, especially today's generation, want realism in what they see and read. Even comic books, how I hate that misleading term, are changing. In the following, I have tried to give recognition to every American and British horror monster science fiction film of the aforementioned sort. There are more such movies on the way. The future looks good, folks. The article continues with mentions of 65 films with shock endings. 16 of these films have been featured on Monster Kid Radio, including Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, Planet of the Apes, and Curse of the Crimson Altar. That leaves 49 films that have surprise finals for Derek to cover. You will never run out, buddy. Here is what Thomas Rogers had to say about today's movie, The Dunwich Horror. Spoiler alert. H.P. Lovecraft's voracious Dunwich Horror seemed indestructible. When its part-human brother was killed by the good warlock at the movie's conclusion, it shifted into its rightful demon dimension. The horror would not enter our dimension again unless someone reopened the dimensional gateway. The only trouble was the heroine was pregnant. In her stomach was the embryo of another monstrosity. FN94 was my first FM, and I fondly remember this article and made it a goal to see as many of the mentioned films as possible. There are a handful I have not seen, and my love for these list of articles continues to this day. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, we've got another new voice to add to the Monster Kid Radio list of regular, is it regular guests here on the show? I want to welcome Brian Clark to Monster Kid Radio. How are you doing, man? 
Very good. Uh, thanks for having me, Derek. Hello, everybody out there in MKR land. I'm happy to be here. Now, you have been on the show in a way once before when our friend Mark Bailey ran around with a recorder at a recent G-Fest yep. and got a bunch of people to call in, basically, or, or say hi to Monster Kid Radio. So we did include you in the mix there, but this is your first proper appearance on the show, and I'm excited because the movie we're talking about this week, it's a personal favorite. Yeah, we're going down to Dunwich, so please don't bother waiting up. <laughs> Yes. See, this is why I know Brian and I are going to get along, because he just quoted The Darkest of the Hillside Tickets. There you go. One of my favorite songs by them. Yeah, it's a great one. Oh, man. man now it's stuck in my head, though. So <laughs> There are worse songs. There are worse songs that get stuck in my head. Now, sure. you have been involved with podcasts before. Are you currently on any shows right now or doing anything right now podcasting-wise? Uh, I am not. No, I was on Attack of the Killer podcast for a couple of years, but uh, I've sort of taken a leave of absence from it for a while to try to focus a little more on writing and stuff. I've got a, a movie blog, uh, Cinemasochist Apocalypse, that uh, reviews all sorts of weird cult exploitation horror trash cinema stuff. I probably doesn't update as much as I should, but I try, and I'm working on a few other little writing projects. I have had a couple of short stories published in the past. Cinemasochistapocalypse.blogspot.com. I'll make sure there's a yeah. link in the show notes to that. <laughs> it's a mouthful, I know. <laughs> you know, just follow the link in the show notes, folks. Uh, but you've also had some stuff published, which is awesome. I'm not familiar with your writing, unfortunately. I didn't do my research well enough, apparently. What kind of writing is it? Uh, horror stories, yeah. I'm, I'm not terribly prolific. Um, <laughs> I've had two stories published, both from Scarlet Galleon Publications, uh, one in Dead Harvest and one in Fearful Fathoms Volume 1, Tales of Aquatic Terror. That, that one you might like. That was uh, intended to be sort of a Robert E. Howard pastiche because he's one of my favorite writers as well. He's, uh, I think you're a little more well-versed in the, in the lore than I am. I'm not so much on the on the trivia with him, but I love his writing. I wonder sometimes if there's like this checklist floating around somewhere on some message board or some Reddit that I'm not aware of, where people, uh, when they're going to come on to Monster Kid Radio, they know the things they need to mention. So, so far you've dropped Darkest of the Hillside tickets, <laughs> Robert E. Howard. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're good, man. We're going to be friends. That's good. <laughs> Well, I'll definitely check that out. Uh, Scarlet Galleon looks like it's one of the the, the smaller press publications, mm -hmm. publishing companies, but sometimes that's the best stuff. I mean, my bookshelves are stuffed full of uh, books from some of these smaller press outfits, and I love it. So I'll have to check that stuff out, man. Looks good. Looks good. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that as well. Why not? So you've been listening to the show for a little while. Uh, we were talking uh, earlier before we hit record that you've been listening since Timothy Price was on the show, which is been a little while so you know what we do every time we have somebody on the show you know oh i know i know and i've been waiting with a, a mixture of anticipation and excitement and a bit of trepidation because i'm afraid i'm going to forget everything i know about movies the second you ask me the first question <laughs> <laughs> all right well for listeners who don't know what i'm talking about or anybody who's new to the show the classic five is a game that we play with everybody who comes onto the show now i've got a deck of cards here and each one of these cards has a this or that yes or no which movie do you prefer style question on them they're all about classic monster movies Movies. I know I just called it a game, but really, it's a conversation starter. Are you ready to play, Brian? I am ready to play. All right, here we go. Card number one. Question number one. What is your favorite classic monster movie sequel? Ooh, um, that would have to be Son of Frankenstein. 20 years ago, in the barony of Frankenstein, a monster created by man stalked through the country, aiming and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns. 
and fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone, in his heart, warm human emotions, in his mind, the monster mania. It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments I were... know, I know, I do thought that we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Lugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You see that? They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron. An arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson, her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers. It's, it's my favorite Frankenstein movie, period. It's my favorite Bela Lugosi performance. I just, I absolutely love Son of Frankenstein. Favorite Lugosi performance, too, huh? Indeed. Wow. Well, you know, he did make Igor something special, so... Yeah. I, I'm trying not to just list off everything being kaiju movies, so I'm trying to keep it kind of uh, <laughs> more, more in the in the horror realm. In the it, Nothing wrong with kaiju movies. In fact, the second card comes from our kaiju expansion deck. Here we go. What two giant monsters that never had a chance to go at it would you like to see fight it out in a movie? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I guess a Godzilla and Gamera a team up they they meet they fight at first kind of like the avengers and then they realize that there's you know they have to beat gauss and king ghidra or something like that gauss and king ghidra on the same side huh? yeah <laughs> they're both they're both evil they both fly they both yeah that's kind of terrifying <laughs> <laughs> but i like it how many times have we all imagined what it would be like if if a toho and i could just get together and and do that with Godzilla and Gamera that'd be amazing that would that would it's it's the fan dream it'll it'll never ever happen but it's we can dream no and uh was it a famous monsters of film a few years ago that had that on their cover yeah the Bob Eggleton painting is is fantastic yeah it'd be amazing it'd be amazing anyway all right card number three Because we could go down that rabbit hole and just stay there, but we got other things to talk about. Card number three. Who's your favorite mad scientist? I like the ones that have have zero reason for doing, you know, you've got your Frankenstein who has sort of altruistic intentions, at least before the uh, obsession gets to him, you know, and, and he just goes completely crazy. Um It's funny. I was thinking about this just before the show, too, wondering if this was going to be a question I got. Oh, no. <laughs> I've... I've <laughs> completely blanked on my answer i guess as far as quality goes i'd have to go with peter cushing's dr frankenstein because Mm. he becomes so terrifying 
by the end of that series that, you know, the, the monster isn't the monster. He is the monster. <laughs> oh, sure. Well, it's hard to go wrong with anything Peter Cushing. So. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. All right, card number four. Oh. I, I, I remembered my answer. Dr. Lor- Dr. Lorca from Blood Island. <laughs> just, just deciding that he is going to turn people into immortal beings by replacing their blood with chlorophyll, because why not? <laughs> I like that, too. It's a good answer, too. I like it. All right. So this card, I did not plan this. Um, and I suspect you've already, you know what? I'm just going to pass on this one. We're going to skip this one because it's it, the card is okay. what is your favorite Bela Lugosi role? But you already told us it's Igor. So, oh, I just yeah, said that. Right, so. okay. I spoiled ruining the game. That, nah, <laughs> no, there's no rules, man. It's all good. All right. Uh, the real card number four. What is your favorite Ray Harryhausen creation? That is going to have to be Guanji. As wonderful as all of his fantastical creations are, there's something just so perfect about the characterization of of the dinosaur in Valley of Guanji, and I love that movie. I love Richard Carlson. Everything about that movie is fantastic. I'm not going to argue. <laughs> it's a great film. All right, and final card. If you could swap places with any character from any classic monster movie, who would it be? Swap places with any character. Um, I'm going to say Kenny. From Gamera, because I want to ride around. Well, actually, it would be Ichi from Gamera versus Gauss, because Kenny didn't get to ride on him. But I want to. I want to take a ride on Gamera. <laughs> if that's not a theme park attraction somewhere in Japan, I'm going to be really disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Well, they do have an Ultraman theme park, but uh, oh, someday I'm going to get we'll have, there. We'll have to work on getting Gamera <laughs> his own theme park too. <laughs> I would love to see that. That would be so much fun too. So much fun. Well, that was the Classic Five, Brian. I think you won. Uh, great. Your prize is that you get to be on Monster Kid Radio this week. Oh, I, I passed. There I passed you go. the test. <laughs> yes! He invokes the unspeakable. Yes! She invites it. The Dunwich Horror, based on H.P. Lovecraft's terrifying tale of those who explore the supernatural. <laughs> Sandra D, Dean Stockwell, Ed Begley, Sam Jappy in the Dunwich Horror. So the movie we're talking about this week, you know, normally I look at 1968 as my unofficial kind of sort of cutoff, just because that's when Night of the Living Dead came out and and it really kind of changed what people consider classic monster movies. But I like to toe dip a little bit into the 70s and maybe even into the 80s, which at some point Brian and I will. This week's movie, though, it is from the 70s. It's a Lovecraft adaptation. It's right up there. Uh, it's one of my favorite Lovecraft adaptations altogether. And I've seen a lot because I go to the Lovecraft Film Festival every year. It's the Dunwich Horror from 1970. And oh boy, this one is a lot of fun. It's wacky. It's got some psychedelia kind of sort of in it. It's just a, a, a mess of wonder. And I enjoy everything, including Dean Stockwell's mustache. <laughs> It's just so much fun. And when you mentioned this on Facebook, just kind of in passing, it's like, okay, that's the movie we're talking about. That's it. I believe one of your other friends mentioned that they were giving it another chance because they used to dislike it. And uh, yeah, like a lot of people don't like this movie because, as you said, it is kind of a mess. But I agree (laughs) with you that it is a wonderful mess. I've always kind of had a soft spot for this one. This is... I believe the third film in what I kind of call the Daniel Haller trilogy. He was involved in all three of the Roger Corman ish 
Lovecraft adaptations. He was the production designer on The Haunted Palace. He directed Die, Monster, Die. And then this film, he also directed. And I'm not sure what the connection is between him and Lovecraft. One of these days, I'd like to find it out. He's still around. He's in his 90s. I'd love to do an interview with him, maybe. Oh, that would be great. If he's available or up for that sort of thing. This is not the first film he did, obviously. You know, he did Die, Monster, Die before this. But I really feel like he injected... Well, again, this kind of cosmic mess into this thing, but he's in control of it the entire time. Yeah. And I dig it. Do you remember the first time you saw the film? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. My friends and I, when we were in high school, we used to uh, have these movie nights where our local video store would have a, you could rent five movies for five bucks. And uh, so we'd go and rent a, just grab whatever we could off the hoarder shelves and then pick someone's house to go to and stay up all night eating junk food and drinking soda and watching monster movies. And this was one of, and typically the stuff ranged a little more into the, you know, the eighties horror kind of thing. But this one got picked up. I I think probably it was my idea because I was a fan of Lovecraft and uh, it, it worked for me then. And it still works for me now. We, we lovingly referred to it as the Dunderville horror because we recognize it's a little goofy. It's a little dopey, but it's, it's a good movie. And, and, you know, in a fun way, five movies for five bucks. Mm-hmm. All on wow. VHS, of course, you know, back back, back in the days. <laughs> yeah, the glory days of the video stores. Yeah, that, mm, that that I would lose so many weekends to that. I think everyone of our of our ilk probably did that on our age group too. And then when you were old enough to have a job, you worked at the video store because that's what film geeks did. I absolutely did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Me too. Over the years, I think three or four different video stores. Uh, anyway, <laughs> you mentioned Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. I know I gush about Lovecraft here, and it's always fun to have other Lovecraft fans on the show. How long have you been a fan of, of Lovecraft? Uh, probably, I think I discovered him maybe in junior high. Uh, I can't remember how I came across it. It might have been through picking up the uh, the Brian Lumley Titus Crow books that were reissued with the Bob Eggleton covers. Okay. And I, I think it might have been one of those, like I started picking those up and then realizing, oh, this is attached to a greater lore that goes back much farther and uh and kind of dug into it from there yeah i've been been a fan for you know since my formative years i guess <laughs> you could say you remember what the first lovecraft story was you read i don't know there were compilations of his short stories getting reissued right around the same time in in the that sort of trade paperback soft cover mm-hmm. um format and and they weren't any particular theme uh, they were just, here's a bunch of Lovecraft stories. Here's a bunch more volume two, you know, kind of thing. So for me, I think it was the rats in the walls. And I believe I could even tell you where I was when I first read it. I mean, that's how much of an impact it had on me, but I knew who Lovecraft was long before that. My uh, creative writing teacher in high school introduced me to Robert E. Howard. And from him, I kind of branched out and kind of knew who Lovecraft was, but didn't read any Lovecraft until mm-hmm. Until much later, uh, the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game was also something I had on my shelf for years before I actually even played it. Just kind of reading a little bit about the background and who the characters or the monsters in particular were, the, the Elder Gods and all that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the first time I saw the Dunwich Horror. I, I wish I could. I'm pretty sure it's not the first Lovecraft adaptation I watched. I'm glad I have it now, and I have it on Blu-ray. It came out on Blu-ray was it last year, maybe the year before. And it looks great. And just the colors in it, the, the way the editing is put together, there's one particular sequence, a shot where uh, Dean Stockwell is doing this ceremony over a grave, which is just so wonky and weird, but 
somehow works. And I just adore this movie. I've never understood the people that kind of actively avoid this film um, and, and kind of talk down about it because I just find it so immersive and fun and, and weird and that the guy from Quantum Leap was in a Lovecraft film. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think it's probably turns people off because people who are purists about a thing and, and Lovecraft certainly has his purist fans. This is a very impure adaptation of Lovecraft. And so I have a feeling it's just uh, some of it probably comes from a bit of that snobbery of, Oh, this is, you know, this is such a weird diluted version of, and it is very weird and diluted all the different, uh, different aspects of how they tried to portray there being cult stuff. Like uh, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of that power crystal stuff from, you know, from the sixties and seventies. It doesn't really, cause Wilbur has that weird glass thing on his coffee <laughs> table that moves and it makes it seem like that's going to be important. Maybe he derives some power from it, uses it to project uh, spells or something. And then it just, you forget about it. Like Sandra D knocks it on the floor and he's like, Oh, that's fine. And then they just never talk about it again. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like you said, there, there's these purists out there and there's no wrong way to enjoy something. And I totally no, understand the not. people who, who want to have pure Lovecraft. Some of the people that I've run into who, who don't like this movie because it's a lousy adaptation, they will praise something like Reanimator, which is also a fun film. But come on, it's a terrible adaptation. <laughs> would have made Lovecraft spin in his grave, all that gore and sex. He would have been mortified. I mean, you have women speaking more than three or four lines in that <laughs> film, which is something you don't get in Lovecraft. So. Yeah, that, that being said, that is one of my favorite movies of all time. But <laughs> You know, Reanimator from Beyond, I love Dagon. Oh, but yes. again, they're, they're not the best adaptations of Lovecraft. Can I tell you something that you, you were talking about being glad to have another Lovecraft fan on? My daughter's middle name is Dagon. Seriously? That's yep. amazing. <laughs> how, how old is your daughter, if you don't mind? Uh, she's 12. And does she know where it comes from? Yes, she does. We've watched the movie together, the Reanimator. They've, they've seen it all. Yeah, my kids and I, we watch all kinds of movies together. <laughs> we just, and going back to Howard, we just went up to uh, Minneapolis uh, a couple of weeks ago to see Conan the Barbarian on the big screen. So It's actually playing here, I think, uh, next month at uh, a local theater down the way. Uh, the Clinton Street Theater is showing the original Conan the Barbarian from 82. Yeah, yeah. The, the good one. <laughs> Honestly, I've not seen the one with Jason Momoa. I just didn't have any interest. So maybe I'm missing out. So I can't say, I can't judge, to be fair. You're not missing anything. He's a but, good Conan, but everything around him in that movie is crud. But that's that's for another time. <laughs> and that's kind of the opposite of the, the Schwarzenegger Conan, which, I mean, mm -hmm. he's great and all, but he's not really the Conan that Howard wrote. But the rest no. of the world feels very Hyborian, so... Mm -hmm. So again, welcome to the Barbarian Kid podcast. And uh, <laughs> I did it with Karen Joan Kohodek, and now I'm doing it here. I need to focus. Let the Chromecast guys do the Howard stuff. They do yeah. it so much better than I ever could. I'm terrible about staying on topic. I apologize. I get distracted easily. <laughs> I did it too, man. I did it too. So the Dunwich Horror. Yes. <laughs> This is one of my favorite stories of Lovecraft. I mean, it's not my absolute favorite, but I really do enjoy it. Where, where does it rank of, of Lovecraft's short stories for you? It's right up there. I'd probably top 10. Hmm. I love the uh, the imagery of when uh, Professor Armitage sprays the revealing powder on 
Wilbur's brother as it's climbing up the hill to the Devil's Hop Yard at the very end of the story. And the description of what it looks like is one of the creepiest monster descriptions he came up with. Because so often it was a, and the thing was so horrible, it blasted everyone's minds. And I can't tell you what it looked like or you'll go mad. But he goes pretty in-depth into describing what it looks like in that that story and uh it's very unsettling and weird lovecraft did have a habit of saying it's unnameable it's undescribable and there's been three pages telling you about it <laughs> he, he did like his adjectives didn't he oh and he had some good ones i you know if a day goes by that i don't use the word eldritch in conversation somewhere <laughs> or, or i feel like i'm gibbous. letting him down gibbous is a good one gibbous <laughs> I really like the Dunwich Horror as well. And I love that that end or towards the end where people are kind of coming up the hill and everything. That That's just a great sequence. And Lovecraft didn't write a lot of action or anything like that. So much of it is mood. But this, that feels so suspenseful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of it is the description. He finally gives us a little bit of a visual or at least what he was imagining. And it's just very well done. I dig it a lot. I don't remember the first time I read the Dunwich Horror, but I know I've gone back and read it repeatedly. How does it compare to the film? Well, I think the movie took some liberties for sure. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. <laughs> but then show me a Lovecraft adaptation that came from a studio, a big studio like that, or, or even a medium-sized studio that didn't take sure. some liberties. Sure, well, well, you have to, because you can't turn a 10-page story into a 90-minute movie without adding some stuff. Or, or changing a few. I mean, Die Monster Die is an adaptation of The Color Out of Space. Mm-hmm. How does somebody do that? Color Out of Space is also one of my favorite stories. How do you do that? Well, Don, Daniel Haller did, but how do you take a color that nobody's ever seen before and put it on screen? Yeah. If anyone could figure out how to do it, they would have figured it out in the 60s, though. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. There is a, a German short film. Uh, I think it's a short film, uh, an independent production called Die Farb. That is a great adaptation of The Color Out of Space. And the way they do it is... The movie's in black and white. When the color out of space turns up, it's in color. And I thought that was kind of a neat way to communicate that idea. But it's not something you'd see come out of Hollywood, I don't think. Sure. I've heard of that movie before. It's it's on the list to, to track down. It does sound good. I also really like, as far as film adaptations that are a little more faithful, The Whisper in Darkness from the uh, Lovecraft Historical Society. Yeah, the, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society do amazing work. Do you listen to their Dark Adventure Radio Theater? I've got the At the Mountains of Madness two-disc, two-CD set, but I've, that's the only one. There's a little shop up in Minneapolis called Dreamhaven that carries a lot of their stuff, but I don't get up there that often, but I usually try to pick up something in there. They've got like a little section all their own Oh, really? <laughs> in the back of the store there, yeah. So I try to pick up some of their stuff whenever I get up there. I'm also, are you familiar with Cadabra Records? Yes. They do some really amazing work with uh, primarily Lovecraft, but they do Clark Ashton Smith, and they've done some Edgar Allan Poe and Andrew Lehman uh, from mm-hmm. the Historical Society does a lot of their readings of the Lovecraft ones, and those are fantastic. If there was ever a man who was born to read Lovecraft professionally, it's it's Andrew Lehman. <laughs> the man's amazing. He is really, really good, yeah. Uh, the Dark Adventure Radio stuff I highly recommend. Uh, I've put it on the Holiday Gift Guide over the years here, and... It's hard to find something that I dislike out of that batch. I mean, there, there are some that I like better than others, but they're all so good. And I'm pretty sure they've done the Dunwich Horror. And it's just solid stuff, man. So good. Yeah, I love radio plays. And that's like one of the best ways to adapt Lovecraft, I think, is to take it to that style from the, like the 30s and 40s. There's just something about that era that, I mean, obviously he was you know still writing in the 30s. He died in 37, right? Uh, I believe so. There's just something about that that style of media 
that really works with his writing, I guess. I think it would kind of lend itself pretty well to something like that because you can't see it. And mm-hmm. so many times Lovecraft doesn't tell you what you're seeing. He just kind of describes how you feel about seeing something. And I think that kind of works. Yeah, it, it definitely does. All right. So again, <laughs> yeah, this time it's my fault, <laughs> completely off topic, but, but still kind of within the Lovecraft wheelhouse. So the Dunwich Horror, 1970, American International, Roger Corman produces it. So it's got that Corman aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned Dean Stockwell and that mustache. <laughs> <laughs> he is an interesting choice he was not the first choice for this movie no he wasn't who was the first choice (laughs) the first choice was peter fonda because if you can't get an eight foot tall goat octopus dinosaur monster in your budget why not hire peter fonda or dean stockwell (laughs) or david carradine he was another option they considered you know i try to imagine what peter fonda would have done with the role 1970s peter fonda and then especially 1970s David Carradine. I mean, totally different than what Dean Stockwell did. Say what you want about David Carradine's real life weirdness. I'm a fan of his film work and a huge fan of his dad. I love, you know, the Carradine family is great. John's one of my favorite actors. But I think David Carradine would have been a good choice because he was such an oddball anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that he would have made Wilbur very creepy. There's a lot of times in this film where we get close-ups of Dean Stockwell's face and specifically his eyes. And if you swap that out with what David Carradine would have done with those shots, oh, very unnerving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dean Stockwell plays Wilbur uh, very aloof mm-hmm. and, and just kind of quietly weird. He doesn't really go too over the top until <laughs> until it's time for the ritual. And then his over-the-top spaz out at the end is is a lot of fun. And I'd love to know if that thing he does with his hands on the side of his face was his idea or if that was something Holler told him to do. It kind of looks – you know when you're trying to amuse a baby by pretending to be a fish and you sort of pucker your lips out and put your hands on the side of your face like they're gills? That's always what I've thought of when I see him do that. <laughs> And he's got that intense look on his face. He's being so dead serious about the whole thing. Oh. And when him and Ed Begley are screaming that stuff that I'm pretty sure they ad-libbed. Because <laughs> it doesn't sound like Lovecraft's occult gibberish. It sounds like they just were making it up on the spot. And they're just shrieking it at each other over the, the lightning and the wind machine. It's it's great. <laughs> Yeah, as much as Lovecraft talked about these ancient books with forbidden lore and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. he didn't really spell out the spells in these books. So, yeah, I can't imagine that there was anything other than, ah, just say something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just start screaming some words at each other. Yeah. Uh, the, the image of him holding his hands against his face, I mean, it's very reminiscent of uh, a popular photo or a famous photo with Aleister Crowley holding his hands up like that as well. Oh, and that's right. I forgot about that. I, I assume there might have been some inspiration there. But again, he does it such, with such, lo- such intensity. <laughs> yeah. Now that you say that, I, I know exactly what photo you're talking about. So that probably is where that came from. But it and- still looks so kind of goofy in this and then there you've got more of the occult mishmash because we talked about the power crystal stuff a little bit and then you've Mm -hmm. got the alistair crowley satanism and then you've got the symbol on wilbur's ring and on his grandpa's staff which is the uh, thunderbird of native american lore completely 
misplaced, not necessarily <laughs> something Lovecraft would have ever dreamed to include. Yeah, you'd think it wouldn't have been that hard to just knock up a quick sigil that looked like an octopus or something, you know, put some tentacles in there. Right, especially since it's directed by a guy who did production design on their first Lovecraft adaptation on The Haunted Palace. Right. Just just come up with, but maybe there's something to be said by giving it some verisimilitude by using a real world symbol. I don't, I don't know. I do think some of the production design and the way the house looks is very almost Bernard Robinson like, kind of hammerish in spots, which is kind of nice. But then again, you've got this Native American symbol thrown in there that once you know it's a Native American symbol, kind of takes you out of it a little bit. At least it did yeah. for me for a long time. I got over it, but you know, it also was perhaps just to avoid slapping pentagrams on everything and just making it look like every other Satan movie that was coming out at the time. You know, at least it does. It's a little bit of a different flavor, even if it isn't maybe quite the right flavor. <laughs> this era is ripe with, with occult type stories and storylines and, and t- movies with witch in the title and just a lot of that kind of pseudo supernatural or pseudo occult witchcraft stuff going on. So to throw some of the stuff in there, yeah, you're right. Just putting in a bunch of pentagrams. or I guess back then, tentacles weren't really uh, the thing yet. But <laughs> Sure. Still. Talking about witchcraft and stuff, you've got those two old ladies who are there when uh, Lavinia is giving birth, and then you just never see them again. So there's some sort of implication that there was, at least at the time of Wilbur's birth, there was a greater cult up in the mountains, and now they're the only ones left. But, you know, where did those witches go? And then there's the people in the flashbacks. When she start, and I, the only thing I can figure about the people in the flashbacks that Sandra D starts having after Wilbur drugs her with the roofies of cosmic horror was that, uh, (laughs) was that they're supposed to sort of imply that the, the cult of the old ones goes back to the beginning of humanity because they don't look native American. They're obviously white people with like gunk of some sort all over not not like makeup but they're covered in like dried mud and and face paint and all this weird stuff and uh they almost look pictish Hmm. or at least what people talk about you know with the woad on their faces and stuff like how picts are generally depicted (laughs) so maybe bran mcmorn fought a shoggoth at some point who knows there you go I, I believe that. I want that to happen. In my head, it already did. There we go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there is this implication that there's more people involved. And if you watch the movie, at the very beginning, the, the prelude to the opening credits, there are other women around while the pregnancy is is happening and the, and the person's giving birth. And then you cut to this animated credit sequence, which is great. Yes, I love those. I, I love the AIP animated credits. And this is this. The ones in this movie, are, this is one of my favorite credit sequences they did of those animations. It's really good, and it kind of tells us a little bit more story, too. It's not just there to look pretty. I mean, it actually communicates a little bit of the story as well, that they couldn't go in and shoot for whatever reason, budget reasons, or maybe they shot something they cut it for the titles. Don't know, but the credit sequence is great. The first time I saw this film, though, so you've got a woman and a man who's got a shepherd's hook walking around kind of sort of looking for somewhere to stay. Did you get any nativity vibes off of that? I didn't until you said that just now, but it makes sense because, you know, they're they're looking for somewhere for their sort of deity child to be born. Their supernatural birth. Just yeah. like Wilbur, yeah. Yeah, so, so I, that was a vibe I got. I don't know if that was intentional or I'm just bringing something to the table, but... No, now that you say that, it's it fits so well. I bet it was. I bet they totally meant to do that. 
without going too over and, the top because they didn't well because they couldn't yeah you'd get <laughs> they wouldn't have been allowed to release the movie if they made that obvious but man if if that really was intentional that is some subversive stuff for a for a wide release movie from 1970 right so we've talked about dean stockwell a lot and and the intensity and the kind of the aloofness he brings there's even some sequences where he's just kind of walking through his house and he's mm-hmm. got this weird kind of strut going on it's just <laughs> i don't understand but uh, but he, he carries a big chunk of the movie but his father is played by sam jaffe and if you want to talk over the top yeah he he chews the scenery a little bit <laughs> just a little uh he's the one with the staff with the native american symbol on it and when he goes out into town he's that old man who's giving everybody warnings about stuff basically he's that's one of the things that they really kept intact from the story too is when the, that sepia tone flashback from the day of wilbur's birth when he goes into the general store that stuff he's saying is verbatim from the story yes so there there are moments of purity <laughs> that we were talking about earlier that they don't yeah yeah true adaptation yeah now, and Sam Jaffe, you know, done a lot, uh, Academy Award winner. He's appeared in a number of genre films as well oh, as yeah. non-genre films. You know, the dating still still comes to mind. But he's done a lot of work, and he's a great actor. And to have him in the mix here, it kind of adds some, maybe legitimacy isn't quite the right word here, but does give yeah. a, a, a bit of heaviness or that that I appreciated. I think if if his performance was a little more dignified it would definitely have given it more gravity <laughs> yeah but, yeah that makes sense but but it also you know he's he was always the the character is kind of the kooky old man who has lost control of the situation you know he he was sort of in charge of things back at the time of wilbur's birth and he was the leader of the cult and now wilbur has outstripped him and is keeping a monster living in the attic and he's just kind of at the end of his powers and at the end of his rope of how to keep control of the situation. So I guess he's got a right to be a little kooky. Yeah, I suppose so. And you mentioned Ed Begley uh, Mm -hmm. earlier as well. He, I guess is Wilbur's foe in this and Ed Begley senior, this is his last film. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had a very long career uh, going back years, doing Broadway and radio at the very beginning of his career did a lot of work and for a long time i had a hard time recognizing him as ed begley jr's father even though i knew better mm-hmm. they just they look so different to me yeah they definitely do there's not much similarity there but he's a great i mean he's on the side of good i guess in this film if there's a good guy bad guy kind of thing but he makes a great heavy in this film mm-hmm. he doesn't get his feathers ruffled too badly and his performance is very matter of fact um, yeah. he's, he's very academic about the whole thing. Like, oh, there's a there's an immortal hell beast from beyond the stars that's going to appear on the on the hillside and destroy humanity. Well, go fetch me my Necronomicon. I guess we got some stuff to do. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. I love that kind of academic scientist kind of approach to mm-hmm. dealing with the occult. And yeah, it's just kind of matter of fact. And uh, okay, now it's time to start yelling gibberish at Wilbur, and he just does it. No big deal. He just does it. He looks a little baffled in that scene. Not not real sure what he's saying. Like, I guess this. I'm, they're paying me, so I'm going to do this, but I, I don't know why. <laughs> and as you said, this is his last movie. Uh, he died only three months after it hit the theaters, so like very close to the end there that he was making this. So hopefully the Whippoorwills didn't get him. <laughs> I was say maybe this movie killed him. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> um, that might be in bad taste, though. And Sandra D is our female lead, which, again, Lovecraft was not very good at writing women. Uh, and part of it's the era in which he wrote and the era in which he wished he lived. I, I get that. 
But you need that, I suppose, in a film and story that involves somebody who's giving birth. I mean, you gotta have a female character sure. in there somewhere. Uh, Sandra D is normally associated with playing like squeaky clean type characters, and to have her appear in a movie like this, and even do a little bit of brief nudity—that was weird. Yeah, typically yeah. you think of her as the beach party movie girl. Yeah, uh, to have her actually do some nudity in this film, and I know when they shot that sequence, they separated everybody. You know, they mm-hmm. didn't have any peeping toms or anybody kind of leering or whatever. They wanted to make her comfortable, so everybody involved in the nude scene was on one set. Everybody else was shuffled off to another stage somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, awesome, respectable. Yeah. Appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And they don't really exploit the nudity here. It's just kind of a thing. Yeah, it's such it's such a brief shot. You almost Which don't. Which I do appreciate as well. Like, y- you could have assumed that there was a body double even if you didn't know the thing about the split set because they don't show her face at the same time. It's just, you know, a couple of frames and done. Yeah. It, it seems like, did they even need it? Probably not. No. I, I'm sure Sam Arkoff told them they needed it. <laughs> Well, well, yeah, I'm sure the producers were like, hey, um, you know what would make this movie sell more? <laughs> Sandra is kind of, she's kind of bland in this movie. And I know she, she spends is. most of the time in a drugged stupor, so that could be the reason for that, too. But I think Donna Bacala, as her friend Elizabeth, is a lot better. I, I almost wish they would have swapped the roles out. Huh. And, and I know they needed Sandra D. that she was the name. You know, that's who you put on the marquee, because everyone knows who she is. But I think her friend... Elizabeth, but you know, Donna Bacala is the better actress of the two and she should have been the lead. <laughs> she does bring a, a certain uh, dynamic quality to the movie that I feel like Sandra D did not. That almost Sandra D feels a little out of place and, and shows. She, yeah. What, why is she making a movie like this? How did I get roped into this? What did my agent do to make this? <laughs> you know, she's, you know, how did that happen? But no, you're right. I think her, the people she's around, Donna Bacala, who I don't know much about, uh, she's great. Mm-hmm. And if we could have had her as maybe our female lead. But, you know, her name's the bigger name. Right. When thinking of uh, the Elizabeth character, when she opens the attic door mm-hmm. and lets Wilbur's brother out, it kind of looks like she's walking through one of those old car wash with the spinning mop things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because that's one of the, you know, you were talking about the psychedelia earlier. That's, you know, the 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 uh, lighting effects and the camera filters go all crazy because, well, the prop for Wilbur's brother was kind of unfortunate. Oh. You, you do get a couple of brief looks at it, and it was definitely in the uh, in the movie's best interest to hide it as much as they could. But you know, they're still flopping all those snake tentacles on her, and just uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what can you do? Yeah. I mean, if they did the movie today, it'd be nothing but a big CGI mess, and maybe that would be better or not. I don't know. Definitely um, or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. You know, how do you bring a Lovecraftian beast to the screen or something like? Uh, say like uh, you know, in the mouth of madness with uh, Carpenter, mm-hmm. the way he's got that kind of wall of beasties going down the hallway. You know, is, does that mm-hmm. work versus putting a bunch of filters on and making it all wonky colored? I don't well, know. And even mouth of madness is a very brief, you know, couple of frames here, a couple of frames there. You don't get a good look at them, and that's the best way to do it. I think is get some practical effects, do them as good as you can, mm-hmm. shoot them in low light, maybe slap a filter on them and don't show them very much. Let the movie's atmosphere be the monster for you. Right. 
um, the movie Unfilmable, uh, Unfilmable, <laughs> the movie <laughs> The Unnameable, I'm going to leave that in, The Unnameable just got a Blu-ray release. and Yes, and I need to pick that up because that's another one that I love. <laughs> it looks great. I mean, the Blu-ray transfer, the sound is awesome, uh, and I love that they even left the original sound on there as an option so you can listen to it, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, Grindhouse Edition. It, it's a lot of fun. And one of the things that I like about that movie, despite the fact that really it's kind of a slasher film in some spots, which is not Lovecraftian at all, the the monster in that moves around so fast that unless you're really paying attention, you, you aren't going to get a full look at it. I mean, there's a lot of movement happening, and maybe that's part of the key as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. But the Blu-ray turn, that, that Blu-ray is a good, good buy. If you're a Lovecraft fan, I recommend it. I've, I've just I've, I have not upgraded since the VHS, so <laughs> it's about time to get a new one of those. I'm really hoping that Unnameable Two gets a Blu-ray release as well because I want John Rhys Davies fighting Lovecraft monsters <laughs> in high definition. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you listening out there, powers that be? <laughs> put that whoever's got the rights to it, put it out. I am glad that I watched this on Blu-ray though. It does make the colors pop even more than the first time I saw this on VHS. It comes as part of a, a double feature with Murders in the Room Morgue, or Murder in the Room Morgue, uh, the 1970s film. And there is a commentary track on the Dunwich Horror release, which really is an overview of just Lovecraftian cinema altogether. It's not very specific to the film, but it's a good, interesting commentary. I didn't really pick up a lot about the movie watching it or listening to it, but mm. I would recommend adding this to your collection as well if, if you're a Lovecraft fan. Yeah, it would. It would definitely look the high def would, uh, as you're talking about the production design inside Mm -hmm. the house is, you know, the colors are so rich and saturated and beautiful. And it's packed with so much visually interesting furniture and light fixtures and little Mm -hmm. odds and ends that, yeah, the, the design inside that house, it almost looks like a Victorian mansion or some kind of museum, like so much stuff packed in there. And which is weird because the outside of the place looks like an old woodshed. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Museum quality is what it looks like excellent way to put it something i didn't think of but no it feels very museum like and when wilbur is pulling down the the cosmic roofies (laughs) (laughs) it's like he's pulling them out of a special display on a special shelf somewhere it looks really Mm -hmm. good and it just it feels rich and it feels almost decadent in spots and again it feels very bernard robinson to me the way hammer did his stuff uh, really enjoyed that. Uh, and I also, again, go back to Die, Monster, Die, where the colors look really good and, and just the way it feels inside. Outside, the house doesn't look nearly as impressive. Like you said, it looks like a woodshed. <laughs> but once you get inside, it looks great. Uh, when they're out having their little picnic and <laughs> Wilbur's asking uh, Sandra D, what do you think about sex? <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> what are you getting at there, Dean Stockwell? Come on. <laughs> uh, he wants to have a, another Yog Sothoth baby. <laughs> Thinking of their, their picnic, I, I'm a sucker for a matte painting, even a really obvious one. Oh, and yeah. uh, when he takes her up to the Devil's Hop Yard, that place looks like I'd, I'd go camping there. It just looks really cool. <laughs> Take some good Instagram photos, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, it does look really cool. And, you know, matte paintings, I mean, I. Even if you can tell it's a matte painting, there's still just something magical about that quality. There's something that 
just looks wonderful and i would love to own some of this stuff if it still exists i mean it just mm-hmm. looks amazing and again they really exploit the colors and the way they lit the the live elements there's almost a bava-esque quality to the lighting and some of the color lights they use in this it's interesting that you say that because this movie was originally announced in 1963 with bava attached to direct you picked up on where I was going there. <laughs> oh, sorry. I spoiled your uh, reveal. No, no, man. This is good. No, this is. Yeah. No. Can you imagine Bava directing a Lovecraft, a straight Lovecraft adaptation? That would have been awesome. Yeah. I, I love Kaltiki, the immortal monster. And I, I would love to have seen him do something like that again in color. Oh, man. That would have been great. Oh, Kaltiki's fantastic. And I've had a lot of people tell me I need to watch Planet of the Vampires. So there's some Lovecraftian stuff in there. I've not oh, seen haven't. that. I haven't seen okay. it yet. And and I can hear Dominique Lamsey's literally rolling her <laughs> eyes right now when I say that. Uh, one of these days I'll watch it. <laughs> it is really, really good. Yeah, I, I need to see it. But yeah, I, I just imagine Bava being involved in a project like this. Yeah, that would have been. I'm guessing he was probably a little out of AIP's price range. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. And, and this has been kicking around. Since 63, at least, has been on somebody's mind on the book somewhere. And this is what they came up with. You know what? I'm fine with that. Because like yeah. this, this, it's such a charming little movie. It gets a lot of stuff wrong. It gets a lot of stuff right. The stuff it gets wrong, it does in a fun way. Mm-hmm. One of the writers, it took three writers to come up with this screenplay. So I'm guessing it was different drafts by each one, not three people sitting in a room banging their head against the desk trying to figure out how to put Lovecraft on the screen. But Curtis Hansen was the only one of any note. The other two didn't do a whole lot of stuff besides this. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for White Dog with Sam Fuller, mm. which has a Dick Miller appearance in it. And he wrote and directed L.A. Confidential <laughs> and directed a whole bunch of other big prestigious movies, too. So, I mean, he went on to have quite a career. This this launched something for somebody anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jogsathos was looking out for him, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else that was involved in this film, and I mentioned this on Facebook the other day, and people know I love my film scores. I love Les Baxter's music in this. I'm a huge fan of Les Baxter's music, uh, not just his scores, but like he did a lot of Exotica and things like that, and I love that stuff. This, to me, is one of his best film scores, and I love it all. I mean, I even love his Bikini Beach uh, movie <laughs> scores, you know, which is also just as fun, but there's... Mm-hmm. There's such mood and atmosphere in this, and just a lot of the, which is a terrible impersonation of what I hear when I watch the movie. Uh, I just, I love that, and it's, mm, it, it just gets me going. Yeah, the music in this is really good. There isn't a lot that, uh, you know, there's that one main theme that get, gets played in a, in a variety of different ways, and that's mm-hmm. really, there isn't a lot of other themes besides that main one but there's so much eerie electronic background music playing through most of the movie mm-hmm. and it it really kind of helps to bolster up the atmosphere he was definitely part of corman's crew because he did the roger corman poe films and like i said he did a lot of the beach party stuff too so he's part of that american international group just did so much work and it's all great i, I highly recommend it if you haven't listened to Les baxter by himself Check it out. Listen to him. And, and even just some of his Exotica stuff. Just check it out. It's really good. I, I don't think I've ever listened to him separated from the, the films that his music is in. So I'll have to look some of that up. Uh, the Beast Within has a really good soundtrack 
and that's uh, from the early 80s, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. know that was his, too. Yeah, that one's really good on its own. But again, I'm also a film score geek, so I'll listen to all this stuff on its own. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have quite a collection of vinyl, you know, since uh, the last 10 years or so, all these little companies have popped up putting out special edition vinyl soundtracks from weird exploitation movies and stuff like that. I've got quite a few of those, but I don't think I have any Les Baxter in the collection. I would love for somebody to release the score for Frogs. <laughs> Which he I also love did. Frogs. Oh, I love it too. And I would just love to hear the music from that just, just to see how it holds up. I don't think anybody's ever put it out. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, probably not a lot of people clamoring for that one. But then again, there was probably nobody clamoring for the soundtrack of Papaya Love Goddess of the Cannibals to come out on vinyl either. And I've got that. So. <laughs> That's one I've not heard. <laughs> it, it's not very good. Well, <laughs> that it exists, though, is something, right? Yes, definitely. Back to uh, the Dunwich Horror. Yes. When, Wilbur, when Wilbur's twin destroys the coal place, did you kind of get Reptilicus flashbacks? A little bit. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. I mean, at least you didn't see him eating a, a paper cutout animated version of Farmer Coal, but... <laughs> Yeah, I got a little bit of a vibe, uh, that vibe here as well. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I like about this film is that we actually get to see the Necronomicon, which I don't know. Is this the first time we actually saw the Necronomicon on screen? I, I don't know how far back that goes. If I'm Is there one in uh, Haunted Palace? Is there one? I feel like there's a book in that movie. And I just watched it not that long ago, and I'm already blanking on it but i feel like there's a book in that movie somewhere guess i'll have to go back and watch it again <laughs> i could be wrong about that yeah. hopefully since none of your listeners are going to have my email i hope you don't get a bunch of hate mail who is that jerk you had on that didn't know that there wasn't a necronomicon in the haunted palace <laughs> i mean it's referenced in other stories by lovecraft obviously we wouldn't know what it is if not you know sure. it, it appears on call of cthulhu and uh, i think pikmin's model mentions it as well mm-hmm the way the book looks, though, you know, we haven't gotten to the point to where when we see the Necronomicon on screen, it's, it, you know, it, it's designed to look like it's made out of human flesh, you know, the Evil Dead model. Right. Bound in human flesh and inked in human blood, you know. It, it doesn't have that vibe. It just is a really old book kept in a glass case. Mm-hmm. And I kind of appreciated that, that it, it's a book, you know. It's not this artifact. It's a book, you know, and I, yeah. I liked that. For me, like one of those giant encyclopedias that every library has just sitting out on a podium. Right, right. Uh, except this is the only one of its kind, and uh, Wilbur has to steal it, I guess. Which they keep in a glass case in the middle of the library where any old schmuck can just walk in. and <laughs> right. It seems like something they should have they had some more security measures keeping it safe, I feel like. Yeah. You know, overall, I'm a big fan of the film. Now, before we started recording, you said you had some other notes. What else would you like to talk about with this movie? The scene of Wilbur's brother's rampage, uh, as simple as they are, are, I think they're really effective. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Iowa. And I've always found wind patterns rippling through grass and over water to be kind of mesmerizing and more than a little ominous because it's tornado country out here, too. Oh, sure. And and cutting all the wind sounds out and just hearing the monster breathe, but seeing how violent its passing is with the gusts of wind blowing everything around, uh, seeing that silent just makes it creepier. That I think that is one of the most effective parts of the movie and probably the easiest 
most simple thing that they probably shot in the whole film. Because just turn a fan on and there you go. Being a podcaster, being somebody who works with sound and, and being somebody who's working on sound effects for uh, the upcoming House of the Gorgon film for Josh Kennedy, I'm very aware, I'm becoming even more and more aware of how sound impacts a, a movie. You know, it's, it's half of the experience, but you can do so much with it or with the lack of it. And when you've got an image that in your mind you know is supposed to have sound, but there's an incongruous sound effect happening or no sound at all, it definitely puts you in some ways on edge. There's this cognitive dissonance that that's not exactly what I should be hearing. So it does kind of work on a level that's not so obvious. I grew up in Wyoming, Cheyenne, Wyoming, very windy. So oh, yeah. I, I'm used to when I see something moving like that. Yeah, there's supposed to be wind. You were talking about the wind patterns on like grass or on water. Uh, I'm thinking about like maybe seeing it in leaves when leaves <clears throat> kind of get whipped around a little bit. There's just something kind of very cool about that. And there is an element of doom coming when you don't hear the sound that's normally associated with that. And I, I did like that a lot. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, was, yeah, being from Wyoming, you've got more experience with that than I do, I'm sure, then. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, the leaves moving, too. The, it's, it's very hypnotic. Mm -hmm. The idea that something you can't see is having such an effect on physical things around you. And mm -hmm. the idea that it could be a giant monster. It makes it even better, right? It's kind of unsettling. <laughs> yeah. The, the whippoorwills as the psychopomps mm -hmm. is interesting. Lots of different mythologies have psychopomps in their lore. And they're usually just guides to help souls find their way to the afterlife. Right. But in this movie, the Whateleys seem very concerned about the psychopomps capturing them. The only reason I could think of for them being afraid of that is maybe they don't want to be led to any earthly afterlife. Maybe the psychopomps will guide them away from the old ones. Huh. But I, there, because I couldn't find anything, you know, trying to do a little bit of research about psychopomps being evil. I mean, they represent death so and change, so obviously they're a little unsettling, but there's never anything I could find about them being dangerous, something to be feared. They're just guides. I do like that idea, though. Maybe I think too much about these things. No, <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm quietly typing away on my keyboard, trying to find anything online about this as well. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I do like that idea that perhaps the reason they're trying to avoid them is because it does kind of take them to that earthly afterlife versus going through the gate, you know, <laughs> and, and, and going down that route. Uh, psychopomps. I mean, even most recently they come up in the Sabrina mm -hmm. Netflix show. So, I mean, they are a thing and they're in a lot of different mythologies. <laughs> and in the Sabrina show, they have a reason to want to avoid them because they're not actually dead yet. They're just astral projecting. Right. So if they get caught by the psychopomps, then they're, they've got a problem, but right. Like I said, I sometimes just do too much work for the movies that I'm watching. <laughs> no, and, and I think that's something about us monster kids, though, and especially us creatives, mm -hmm. is we start bringing our own things to the table and start spinning it out. And I'm going to be honest with you, you gave me an idea for a story just now when you were talking about the psychopath. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so, you know, I'm all for it, man. Let's overanalyze these movies, but in a good way, yeah. in a good way. Yeah, well, like you said, that's how you, a lot of people get ideas for stories. I've certainly got ideas for stories that way, watching something and going, I wish they would have taken the story here. I wish they would have incorporated more of this element. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I'll just go do that when I'm done watching the movie. <laughs> you know, and in true Lovecraftian fashion, he would have been down with it. I mean, he was total. Mm -hmm. he was the first creative commons, wasn't he? I mean, he was pretty much, go do whatever you want with my stuff. Yeah. The, the Lovecraft shared literary universe. Basically. 
basically. And Take that, Marvel. <laughs> now, Marvel seems to get it right. Take that, Universal. Oh, How about that? <laughs> right. No, I, I, I wasn't dissing Marvel. Oh, by okay. any means. I love those movies. They are, as my friend Tim puts it, action movie Pixar. They're fantastic. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. The only other thing I had that we didn't already talk about is that uh, Talia Shire, who was Talia Coppola at this point, Mm -hmm. would uh, get her vehicle hurled off the road by a monster again almost a decade later in John Frankenheimer's Prophecy, which is one of my favorite monster movies of all time. (laughs) So the lesson is here, don't let her drive? Yes. Okay. (laughs) It's very dangerous. (laughs) Let Rocky drive her around. There you go. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) I thought she was fine in the movie, too. I mean... Yeah, she was good. It's kind of hard to stand out in a film like this when you've got this over-the-topness happening at the end of the movie with Dean Stockwell and Ed Beckley shouting gibberish at each other. (laughs) So it's really kind of hard to stand up to that. Mm -hmm. But everybody in the film does a good job, maybe some better than others. Uh, Sandra Dee definitely is probably the weakest member of the cast. But is that her fault, or is it because they just didn't give much to her character to do in true Lovecraft fashion? Yeah, I I would guess it's probably a bit of that because she's pretty charismatic in a lot of those beach party movies so i don't think it was mm-hmm. like you said i think it was just they didn't give her much to do and that she was drugged most of the time the character was drugged <laughs> yeah, yeah yes yes i'm sure she i'm sure she wasn't not at all they didn't do that in 1970 no not at all especially on a corman <laughs> picture especially right? on a corman picture <laughs> From what I understand, she had a pretty good sense of humor about things, too. So she probably had fun doing it. Uh, she thought the Look at Me, I'm Sandra D song in Greece was hilarious. You know, she just, you know, she, she had a pretty good sense of who she was and that sort of thing. And so I'm sure she had fun doing it. I'm sure they all had fun doing it. How could you not? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's the dream. Wouldn't you love to make monster movies for a living? But I certainly would. <laughs> yeah. Sign me up. Sign me up. I'm all in, man. I mean, I still podcast, so don't get me wrong. But, you know, if anybody's out there listening and wants me to make a monster movie, I'm, you know, currently looking for work. (laughs) And I'll even have Dean Stockwell back with that mustache. (laughs) I bet he'd be game for that. Well, he was in another version of Dunwich Horror. Really? Yeah, which I've not seen. I've been meaning to check it out. Um, I think it came out in... 2009 yes and oh. he did not play wilbur watley in this uh, from what i understand like i said i've not seen the film i do need to check it out though i do too now i had no idea there was another film version of this but yeah directed by lee scott came out in 2009 it was a tv movie it takes place in louisiana hmm that's interesting yeah considering that uh, lovecraft wrote Pretty much exclusively New England area. New England, yeah. It's it's always weird to see his stuff transplanted to somewhere that isn't New England, I guess. it's Sometimes it works. I feel like uh, the Cthulhu, which a few years ago, even though Tori Spelling's in it, is a pretty solid film, and that takes place in the Pacific Northwest. That's right. It does, doesn't it? I hadn't seen that since probably right since it came out. But. Yeah, same here. I saw it at the Lovecraft Film Festival, and that was about it. I actually think Louisiana would work pretty well for like the swamps. The bayous, that would be a really creepy place to encounter some sort of horrible hell beast from another dimension. I, I could see kind of transplanting it there a little bit, um, maybe go with the plantation angle for the Watley House and that sort of thing. Yeah. Really kind of playing up the southern as well as the swampy. And then, yeah, that would work. But in that version, Dean Stockwell does play Dr. Armitage. Oh, okay. And Jeffrey Coombs plays Wilbur. 
oh, wow, now I have to see it. <laughs> yeah, there's just something about, I mean, as a Lovecraft fan, I think we're legally required to watch any Coombs Lovecraft adaptation. Absolutely. I think that's just something we have to do, and, and if not, we... I don't know. We have to turn in our Lovecraft card or something. I don't know. So, yeah, we'll uh, I'll have to check this one out. I just got mine laminated, so I'm not ready to give it up yet. <laughs> but I do need to check that one out. If any listeners have seen that, uh, I would love to hear what you think of it. Is it something that I should put to the top of the list or just kind of leave it somewhere in that nebulous to watch list of movies or stack of movies that I have here? Um, TV movie, though, huh? Hmm. Yeah, that, that always carries a bit of stigma to it, I know. It's always like, oh, it's a TV movie. Well, I don't. But that cast. <laughs> yeah. What TV? Did, I suppose 2009, it could be anybody, really. Yeah. I'm sure it was something for cable. I can't see CBS or NBC or somebody doing, you know, one of the big networks doing that. But, man, I would love to see one of the big networks tackle Lovecraft seriously. That'd be so much fun. <laughs> Maybe, actually. Yeah. I take that back. Listener, uh, TV networks, forget what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> NBC would screw it up so bad. Yeah. Uh, anything else about the film? I, I think we just about covered it. The movie runs, what, an hour and a half or so, and uh, yep. it never really slows down or bogs down for me. No, it doesn't. It, it clips along pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I, I've watched it twice now leading up to this, just over the past couple of days. So I wanted to watch it once by itself and then once with the commentary track, and I didn't get bored either time. Yeah, I've I've also revisited it twice in pretty rapid succession in the last week or two, and like you said, it did. I was afraid that the second viewing, I'd be like, "Okay, can we get this over with?" But no, it holds up every time. So solid stuff in the in the canon of Lovecraft adaptations. I put it right up there with things like the Haunted Palace, uh, in that kind of orbit. I recommend it. Brian recommends it. Absolutely. If you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. So I want to thank you for being part of the show. And again, I want to let people know where they can find you. Cinemasochist Apocalypse. Did I get it right? <laughs> you, okay. you did. Okay. <laughs> I don't break, ever make anything easy. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> so cinemasochistapocalypse.blogspot.com. <laughs> yeah, I did it right there. Looks like it's uh, movie reviews about... All kinds of genre stuff. Yeah, it looks like it's kind of all over the place. Uh, the, some of the more recent entries. Oh, The Boneyard with Phyllis Stiller. Mm -hmm. Zombie movie with Phyllis Stiller. And Eaten Alive. Okay, so yeah, you are all over the place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's awesome. I mean, we, we you know, nice to have some variety. Yeah, I, I grew up loving every kind of monster stuff, I guess, because you know, when I was young, my parents didn't let me watch contemporaries you know i grew up in the 80s so i couldn't see you know jason Voorhees and that kind of stuff but since my parents remembered watching the universal monsters and stuff as a kid and uh, kaiju movies are safe obviously so i grew up on universal horror and 50s you know, atomic monster movies but every time we'd go to the video store i'd spend the whole time looking at the covers of movies that they would never let me rent like the brain and fright night and uh, return of the living dead and those always just the images on the covers scared me but i like that feeling of being scared by them and so when i grew up then i of course started watching that so i just i'm kind of an omnivore a genre omnivore i love everything from stuff that was put out last week to stuff that was put out in 1920 you know kind of how i grew up too is i wasn't allowed to watch the modern stuff but the universal stuff the black and white monster movies those were somehow safe mm -hmm. compared to the other things so 
Yeah, I hear you. That's exactly what happened with me as well. And I knew the names Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger and all that before I could ever see any of those films because I would read the box covers repeatedly yeah. at the video store and then put it back on the shelf real quick when my mom asked what I was looking at. You know, just because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I didn't need her looking at it. So, no, I, I understand, man. So, yeah, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that. Any uh, fiction or anything in the works that listeners can look forward to? I'm working on a lot of stuff. When any of it will be finished or if I'll get any of it published is hard to say. Uh, that's the sort of the curse of being a writer with a million ideas and not a lot of spare time as I start many things and finish few of them. <laughs> but uh, I'll be certainly update you if I do have anything else that gets picked yeah, up. Yeah, please do. Please do. I mean, we're all about supporting fellow monster kids on this. So anything coming up, let me know and we'll put a link in the show notes at the very least. Or maybe even have you back on to talk about it. We got to have you back on anyway to talk about some other movies. There was a movie from the 80s that we're actually going to cover. What was the name of it again? Planet of Dinosaurs. Yeah. Sweet. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Cinemasochist.blogspot.com or follow the link in the show notes if you want to keep up with Brian and know what he's up to and what he thinks about, well, a whole variety of different types of horror movies. There are so many on this list here. He's just all over the place. I don't know how he does it. I couldn't keep it straight. I love my classic monster movies and... You know, I do watch other things, but to kind of keep it, man, I don't know, Brian's the man. So I'll make sure there's a link to that, as well as a couple of the books that he's appeared in, the anthologies that he mentioned at the beginning of the conversation. There will be links in the show notes to that as well. And as always, if you buy those books through the link on the website, I get a little bit of kickback because I'm an Amazon affiliate. So help support the show that way while buying some fiction from Brian Clark. Brian will be on the show again in the future. We already talked a little bit about that. And uh, I just, you know, I'm looking forward to it. It was a lot of fun. Brian, thank you so much, man. <laughs> and he will shock you out of your sanity too when the transfusion of terror is performed by the mad doctor of Blood Island. All of those lives that you think have been wasted in the cause of this experiment actually have brought us closer to that lifelong dream of longevity, eternal youth. I will not give up the work of a lifetime simply because you think I'm mad. got him aboard, he was half-conscious, so we tried to revive him. He turned into a raving lunatic. He killed one of my men before I finally got a bullet in. What happened to him? He jumped overboard. It was right after sunset. We couldn't find a trace of him. But before he jumped, he bled a lot on deck. His blood was green. This is a barbaric experience in the most grotesque sense. You will see supernatural beings caught up in the rampage of gory brutality. And it will shock you and jolt you 
more than you would ever expect. Creatures living for synthetic green blood. They walk by night and take part in gruesome, unholy acts of savagery. <laughs> It's incredible. It's unbelievable. But you will witness scenes so frightening that your mind will not be able to accept what you see. But don't say we didn't warn you. The mad doctor of Blood Island is coming your way soon. And he's waiting for you. Why don't you pay him a visit? No appointments are necessary. But bring along your courage. You will need it. Yes, indeed. Imagine the world around you is nothing but an illusion. Creatures of legend wage endless wars between shadow and light, but you never see it. Even now, dark forces threaten reality as we know it, but most people never know they exist. This is the world I walk in. I am called Byron. And these are my chronicles. The Byron Chronicles, available at ericbosbypresents.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else podcasts are available. And much of madness, and more of sin, and horror the soul of the plot. Now, open your eyes. Three murders in the room morgue, Mr. Jerome. All three victims mutilated with vitriol. I would say the pattern is established. Now, Edgar Allan Poe's masterpiece, Murders in the Rue Morgue, inspires a totally new motion picture experience, a new dimension in horror, a terrifying trauma where blood-chilling dreams come true. your mother. 
Must a man die twice for his crime, Caesar? He's mad. Beneath the mask of the beast is the evil power which terrorizes a city. The nightmare of horror which begins with the murders in the Rue Morgue. Derek, it's Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network and the House of Franklin Stein on the Supermates Podcast. And I just wanted to uh, wish you a belated uh, happy 400th episode. That is an achievement, dude. As a fellow podcaster, 400 episodes, man, that is some staying power. And it's because you do a great show and your guests are great, excluding myself, of course. I've been on there a couple times. But it's a fantastic show and you take the accolades, man. You've earned them, okay? Uh, enough of that, though. Uh, just a few comments on some of the episodes I've listened to. I binged them because I was kind of on a podcasting sabbatical over a holiday break. Uh, so I've been listening to the last few episodes. One thing I didn't, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the, the face of the screaming werewolf, the <laughs> notorious Lon Janey Jr. movie that's not quite a movie. There's an action figure of that, uh, werewolf, of Lon Chaney as that werewolf. It's new and it's out. In Target stores right now, uh, Mego Corporation has come back from the dead. Uh, actually, still uh, the president of the original Mego, Marty Abrams, is back in charge. Uh, there's Mego figures in Target stores, and one of them is a Cheney Enterprises licensed face of the screaming werewolf figure. It's their way of getting a werewolf figure out there, a Lon Cheney werewolf, without having to pay universal uh, licensing fee. So if you can find that one, which I haven't been able to, it's out there, so if anybody wants that, they can get it. Speaking of monsters, uh, the Marvel monster subject uh, that you had with uh, Brenda and and Scott and Tracy, uh, I I say bring them all, all of them. Dracula, Frankenstein, Werewolf by Night, Blade, Ghost Rider. I think that would be a great place for Marvel to go. Maybe not as the main thrust of the MCU after the whole scroll thing that apparently is going to start coming up in Captain Marvel. But that's a cool way to go, and I mean, how cool would it be? Somebody's got to do these monsters right, and I don't have a lot of faith faith in Universal to do it. So I hate to say that, but Marvel has done, like, no wrong. So let them have a whack at it. That's my opinion. You know, I probably should have cut in earlier. So I'm going to interrupt the voicemail here because I want to comment on a couple of things that he's already brought up. First of all, the figure from Face of the Screaming Werewolf. You know, I saw plenty of pictures of those online. I think Mark Peterson from Dr. Tongue's I Had That Shop also posted about that as well, and a handful of other people did too. I would love to get my hands on that figure. The problem is, is that every Target that I have access to here, they didn't just not have this one. They didn't have any of the Mago monster figures. I think they had like a Charlie's Angels and was there a BSG? I, I, I don't remember, but they didn't have any of the monsters. And that was really disappointing because I would have loved to have gotten my hands on a complete set of what they did. And I'm using air quotes here because it wasn't really an official set because like you said, they wanted to go around the universal thing by using a different werewolf played by Cheney. I do have the Dracula. 
a listener sent that to me, but I don't have the Frankenstein and I don't have the face of the screaming werewolf. So, you know, my birthday was last month. So as a belated birthday, you know, I'm just, you know, <laughs> if anybody knows where they can get their hands on these pretty cheap, I highly recommend them because that figure looks awesome. And then as far as the Marvel MonsterVerse goes, that idea, you know, I meant to start a thread about that in the Facebook group because I said, let's take it to Facebook, and then I never did. So I'm going to do that this time. In fact, this is something I'm going to start talking about on an upcoming YouTube video as well. I think it would be a lot of fun to kind of deep dive into the monsters of Marvel and talk a little bit about Frankenstein's monster and Dracula, the various werewolf stuff they've done over the years, the satanic stuff with Son of Satan and Satan and all them it would just be fun to get into and talk about and yeah i would love to see them brought to the screen as like one thing like maybe a halloween mini series in october on the disney streaming service i'll write it i'll write it for free disney just just saying all right back to his voicemail the thing about the dracula uh and the baby i don't know about that being in dan curse's dracula it is in the book. That section's in the book, and in fact, it's kind of more, even more gruesome in the book, the description of it. So it is in there. I'm not sure what uh, Dracula movie your listener saw that in, but yes, that, that did exist before the Coppola, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula version. Not sure if it was ever in the Jack Palance or Jack Palance version, but yeah, it is out there, and yeah, it's disturbing in whatever version it's in. So I had a number of people reach out to me about the Dracula bringing a baby in a burlap sack and then tossing it to his bride's sequence. No, it's not in the Dan Curtis production or version of Dracula. However, I have received reports that it appears in two other adaptations. One is the PBS version of Count Dracula. It was done in 1977. I guess... It's not PBS. It was broadcast on PBS here in the States. It's actually a BBC version of the story. It was uh, directed by Philip Seville, and I've never seen it. It's something that I keep meaning to see, but I just never got around to seeing it. Some people said it was in there. Some other people said it could also be seen in Jess Franco's 1970 Count Dracula starring Christopher Lee, which reportedly Christopher Lee said was his favorite version of Dracula that he did. I've not seen this either, despite the fact that I've had the Blu-ray in my collection for over two years now. I need to sit down and watch it. In fact, somebody did reach out to me and ask if I'd ever consider talking about any Jess Franco films here on the show. And I was a little hesitant because I know Jess Franco didn't do a lot of straight-up horror films, but there are a couple in his filmography that I may tackle in the future, including 1970s Count Dracula, because I really need to justify owning the Blu-ray. Anyway, reportedly, the sequence appears in both of these versions of Dracula. I want to say thank you to everybody who reached out to me, either by email or on Facebook, or I think somebody even said something on Twitter about this. I hope it fills in the blanks for the people that were wondering about it. Really enjoyed the Dan Simber. Uh, I need to really, really need to see Stream of the Wolf. Uh, I'm totally on board with uh, Dr. Gangrene, Larry Underwood's estimation of Clint Walker making a fantastic Superman. In fact, uh, there's a book uh, from Tomorrow's Publishing, uh, The Krypton Companion by Michael Urey. Uh, where he polls some uh, Superman creators uh, who they thought would have made a good Superman. And uh, Clint Walker comes up by just about everybody. He says, oh, yeah, he would have been the perfect guy to play Superman in the 60s. The man's a mountain. I mean, he's just huge. And, uh, yeah, The Dirty Dozen, fantastic film with him in it. So I, I definitely check that out. Need to see that film. My Dark Shadows run, I got to the Leviathan storyline, and I kind of stopped so I could watch a bunch of horror movies back in October. And I haven't got back into it yet. I need to and finish things up. 
but I do dig the dark shadows. So any coverage of dark shadows, I'm all about. So, again, great, great stuff. Keep it going. 400 more episodes or more. You and Brenda Rock, thanks for entertaining me every Thursday. You guys are awesome. Talk to you later. Bye. Wait a minute. I thought you said you hadn't listened for the past several Thursdays because you were just harassing you, man. So, Dan Sember, I had so much fun doing that. It will happen again this upcoming Dan Sember. We will continue to talk about Dark Shadows, and I'm going to put this out there right now. We will also be talking about Dan Curtis's version of Frankenstein. I'm really excited to get into that one as well. And then who knows what else will come up. But I am going to talk more about Dark Shadows in December because, I mean, over 600 episodes. Over a 1,000 episodes, isn't it? Anyway, for as big as it is, as much content, as many hours of Dark Shadows media there is out there, I don't see why I can't devote more than one Dan Samber to Dark Shadows. I'll also be talking about the film Night of Dark Shadows, so that's going to be coming up in December, excuse me, Dan Samber of this year. Scream of the Wolf, real easy to get your hands on. It's in the public domain. It's all over YouTube. It's on a number of Mill Creek sets. You can find it pretty cheaply, if not freely, and Highly recommend it. Very cool what you said about Clint Walker. I had no idea that several other Superman creators felt the same way. So Larry, you know, good company, great minds and all that, right? Chris, thank you for listening to the show. Thanks for supporting the show as you have over the years. We need to come up with a reason to have you back on the show. And I know that we've talked a little bit about this via Facebook, but if I put it out there now into the Potiverse, then it somehow feels more real. I want to do more classic Star Trek stuff here on the show. I don't know in what shape or form, but Chris, you're at the top of my list of people to call when it's time to do more classic Trek. Listeners can find Chris and his wife over at the Supermates podcast. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to play the promo that Chris and Cindy sent me for the Supermates a while back. It's a little out of date because they've long completed their move to the Fire and Water Network. But, you know, you still hear their chemistry and it's a fun promo. (sighs) Well, Cindy, this is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire and Water podcast headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman invisible plane. Oh, jeez. Well, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed. No change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standee. thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Hey Derek, it's Mike. I was just listening to the latest feedback special. You guys are talking about the Marvel monsters, uh, the idea that Chester has. I think it's fantastic. But uh, keeping with the Dark Shadows theme, I want to mention, did you, were you aware of the Marvel Comics Dark Shadows crossover, that Dark Shadows does exist in the Marvel Universe, albeit unofficially. There is an issue of Marvel 2-in-1 starring the thing, Ben Grimm, where he goes to a disguise but discernible to the intelligentsia 
version of Collinwood. Even more daring, a gold key comics writer, when they had the license to Dark Shadows, forced an unofficial Dark Shadows Doctor Strange crossover. Uh, it was in the continuity after the show was canceled. Uh, some wizard who had been banished into another dimension who had confronted Barnabas is revealed to have gone to a dimension where Dr. Strange had banished a silver dagger, and the guy emerges back on our plane in Dr. Strange's lair, I think through the eye of Agamotta, or however you say that, complete with Clea yelling, Stephen! Now, this is in the Gold Key comic. It's all unofficial. But, yes, there is uh, Dark Shadows in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, fantastic, huh? Uh, what a wonderful and strange world in which we live. And just on a side note, they were talking about sending plastic fangs that you've had in your mouth. Fun fact, in colonial times, when you picked out false teeth, people had their former teeth all in a barrel, all your wooden teeth in a barrel. You'd pick them up, try them, see if they work. If not, throw them back in the barrel for the next customer, and then try the next pair who knew where they had been. All right, man, it's a good episode with you guys, and uh, we'll uh, totally talk to you soon. Bye-bye. So that was author Micah Harris, and I wanted to take a second to respond to that before I play the next voicemail that I have from him. I just want to say how cool it is that there's this unofficial crossover between Dark Shadows and Marvel, and not just one company's books, but two. How cool is that? I know I don't talk a lot about comics here on the show. When it comes up, it's usually in relation to a comic book adaptation of a movie, and even then, it's pretty rare when we talk about comics. And I could be honest with you, I could geek out about, especially older comics, for a while, and older meaning basically when I was reading them, which really wasn't all that long ago. But anyway, I'll be talking a little bit about that in a YouTube video in the very near future. That's a plug for the Monster Kid Radio YouTube channel. Anyway, uh, that's so cool. I knew about the wooden teeth. I didn't know it was just a matter of whatever fits you take. And if it doesn't, you spit it out and put it. Ew. Ugh. Okay. Anyway, so cool about the crossover. Let's play his next voicemail. Hey, Derek, it's Mike again with a follow-up call on the same episode, on the one I made previously about the Dark Shadows being part of the Marvel crossover universe. It's in regard to the uh, missing Jack Palance Dracula scene. I have to say, I think Brenda's uh, insights into the human psyche are spot on. Uh, the, the person who wrote in is misremembering. Uh, I'm pretty sure that that is from the Louis Jordan Dracula. Uh, that ran on PBS in the 70s, late 70s. Uh, it's excellent. It's one of the best adaptations, even though Jordan is kind of miscast. He's just a little too short, uh, but not as bad as Lon Chaney Jr. and Son of Dracula, which I love, by the way, and I really love Chaney's miscasting. I think that's part of the charm of that movie. But the whole throwing the baby in a back scene and the women going for it's really nightmarish. Uh, it's really, you know, for a late 70s, of course it was PBS, uh, disturbing scene. It is in the book. Uh, Bram Stoker and Charles Dickens seem to have been in a contest of a who could kill the most children, uh, in a 19th century novel. Uh, for Stoker, nothing beats something called maybe the Doom of the Doubleborn. Uh, look that up. It was written for a Christmas issue in which these homicidal boys uh, torture two little twins to death before one of the, the dads shoots one of the kids' heads off by accident. And then the kids who are the killers throw the headless trunks of the children down, 
killed a parent, and they are knighted uh, based on their story that they saved the children from the parents. But anyway, yeah, that is, I believe, being misremembered. I can see why he remembered it. It's, it's very effective, evocative. No, just evocative, terrifying. You couldn't see that for a long time in America legally, but it has been. I have a copy, an official copy of the BBC Louis Jordan Dracula, and it's pretty awesome. Finishes the finish. Mina, excuse me, I'm stammering here. I talk pretty someday. Mina's played by Julie Balker, Balker, uh, from Clash of the Titans. And I'm pretty sure that Gene Colan did use Jack Palant as a model. I feel sure I've read that in an interview with Colan. Uh, he did seem to have used a lot of photographic reference. I actually exchanged an email with Gene Colan several years back now, before he passed away, of course, and I asked him about his rendition of the Black Widow from the early 70s, who when Bill Everett inked her, which is sexy as all get out to this 12-year-old. And I asked him if he had any reference, and he said that she was everything that was beautiful to him in a woman. So I think he was probably taking something here and there and maybe not going for a spot-on uh, likeness. And it would have been before, uh, yeah, the actual casting uh, to Lance's Dragon, in the Curtis movie, whether the Mr. High. Okay, Google cut him off there, but yeah, just kind of backing up what we said earlier. But yeah, that, that's, I think I need to see that. It sounds like it's something I really need to see. Anyway, Mike, I call back right after Google cut him off. Dude, I keep getting cut off on your machine. I don't understand it. All those other folks, uh, you know, uh, recite the full text of Atlas Shrugged, and I... Without a break. Uh, anyway, I'm I'm done. I just I don't I've never heard. I don't recall that uh, Gene Colan based the Dracula and Tomb of Dracula on Palance, particularly in his Jekyll and Hyde. That may have been the case. Uh, it may have been he just thought like Dan Curtis. Palance had that Dracula face, but I may be wrong about the Jekyll and Hyde thing. Anyway, I've troubled you enough today. I'm done. All right. Uh, hope this helps. And you've probably already gotten calls in on the Louis Jordan thing. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, Google's got that three-minute limit, man. So when people call in and it sounds like they're leaving really long messages, it's because they call more than once. And I typically just stitch it together in post to make it sound like one long call. Or sometimes people just send me a recording that they did on their own by email. So that works too. Anyway, Micah, thank you for calling in, man. Now, I did read the Gene Colan using the Jekyll and Hyde version of Palance on the internet. And as we all know, the internet never tells a lie. Everything on the internet, you can believe without double-checking sources or anything like that. Because if it's on Wikipedia, you know it's truth, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um... <laughs> I appreciate you calling in, man. I really do. And uh, listeners, you're going to hear Micah on the show in the future. He and I have a movie that we're going to be talking about sometime this year. Let's make it happen. Again, I'm putting it out into the potosphere, the potiverse. So now I'm committed. Thanks again, man. I got one more voicemail that came in, and uh, I'm just going to play it because I really don't know what to say in response to it. I wanted to call the guy back to make sure he was okay, but... You know, Google Voicemail doesn't always give me a number on the caller ID. In fact, this one came in as unknown, so I couldn't even call the guy back if I wanted to. I hope he's all right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's Willie Loomis. Uh, Barnabas heard your podcast, and he, he ain't happy, you know. He don't like that. And uh, you shouldn't have done that. Shit. Willie. It's, it's Barnabas. I wasn't talking to nobody. I get lonely, you know. I, I was I was just pretending I was talking to Maggie and Willie. He, he no part of us, no.
That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Like I've been saying all episode long, everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio, everything that got mentioned in this episode, you're going to find in the show notes over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. That's how you keep up with us. That's how you'll know what's coming up. That's how you'll know how to get a hold of us because our contact information is over there. You can send us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail at our Google voicemail line, which is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5M. KR. Now, this is a Google voicemail line, which means it's got a hard three-minute limit. But don't worry. If you need to call back more than once because you have more than three minutes worth of stuff to say, I'll edit it together and make it sound like one long, smooth voicemail. I got your back. I got you covered. Anyway, head over there. You're going to find links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group. Please consider liking the page and joining the group, especially now if you are a Facebook user because I know Facebook has been slowly going through and weeding out people from groups and pages if they haven't been active in said group and pages they kind of get unsubscribed or unjoined if you are on facebook maybe pop in make sure it didn't happen to you and if it did well please consider re-liking and resubscribing to the group in addition to the two amazon links to the fiction anthologies that brian mentioned earlier in this episode i'll also make sure there's an amazon link for the dunwich horror on blu-ray it is part of a double feature with the movie murders in the room morgue which is an edgar Allan poe film which i may or may not do edgar august poe month again this year stay tuned for that if we do though i can guarantee you we will be talking about murders in the room morgue so maybe consider this just kind of getting ahead of the curve here by picking up this blu-ray at least you'll get the dunwich horror in blue and it looks great anyway it's from scream factory and i'll make sure there's a link to the amazon page in the show notes what's coming up next week well i've got a number of things in the can and you know what i'm feeling i'm feeling guillotine is that a, a word an adjective i'm feeling like guillotines so why don't we talk about the movie two on a guillotine it's from 1965 directed by William Conrad, and I'm going to be talking about it with Tim Durbin. Tim's been on the show in the past, and you can find him over at his website, Viewing the Classics, at viewingtheclassics.blogspot.com. Come back next week to hear he and I talk about Two on a Guillotine. And this was a movie that he picked that I had never seen before, so it'll be a fun conversation. That'll be happening next week. When she awakens, she'll discover that her demons are very real, and they mean to destroy her. happens, she mustn't lose her head. Tommy Stevens and Dean Jones, two young people in love, full of fun and gaiety, the joy of living. But now she must return to the dark house. The gleaming blade has claimed one victim already. Soon there'll be two on a guillotine. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 
unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to this week's song, A Positive Hologram from the band Robotron, off their new album, Robotron in Part 3, The Final Battle, Robotron versus Notorbor the Emotional Robot. Robotron is an awesome surf band based out of Bergen, Norway, and you can find them right now at Robotron and then the number one.bandcamp.com. Check them out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.